Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Isaiah, yet again, 66 chapters here, lots of material. Today in chapter 28, I invite you to turn there, chapter 28. I'm thankful for the many uh, kind words that so many of you have offered. Uh, it has been a sweet pilgrimage thus far through the book of Isaiah. In a moment, we're going to read beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 28. And before we do, I want to remind you of what is going on. The reason that Isaiah is intimidating to most New Testament Christians is because it is long. Invariably, I meet with uh, couples who are planning to be married in premarriage counseling. And uh, I always assign a book, and uh, the odds are essentially um, one in a million that the young husband-to-be reads books. <laughs> I'll look at the young bride and say, I'm going to assign a book. Do you read? Yes, I read. I'll look at the young man. Do you read? No. <laughs> Men don't read. This is a shame. So if you're going to get married and you want me to help you, you have to read one book, and I will make sure you read it, and we will talk about it, and I will embarrass you if you don't, but just not much. I'm not like that. But I am delighted that we get to look at Isaiah, but it is intimidating because it's 66 chapters, and that's an awful lot of chapters. And on top of that, it's about things that are 2,800 years old. And we look at that and we say, whatever that is, it's got nothing to do with me. And so increasingly, younger people especially, you know, that history stuff, that doesn't matter. It's got nothing to do with now. And I would suggest to you that if we don't pay attention to it, then we wound ourselves greatly. So your response to Isaiah has been good, and I'm grateful for that. So today we come to the 28th chapter. The 28th chapter falls in what Bible interpreters call the first half, uh, essentially the first 39 chapters. Uh, so this, this chapter is going to fall in the first half of the book of Isaiah. And the first half of the book is primarily a book about judgment. Judgment. Again, not a very popular subject. Who wants to read about that, talk about that, think about that? Who wants to wear that? as we reflect on our own lives. And it's about God's judgment upon Judah, the southern kingdom of his people in the 8th century. So we learned in chapter 1 that Isaiah was the prophet over a period of some 40 plus years covering the reign of four of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and lastly Hezekiah. But we find ourselves today in chapter 28 and Ahaz is still the king. The world's superpower is Assyria, and the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Maybe you've heard of Nineveh. God's people had long hated the Assyrians because the book of Jonah reflects that. God sent there to proclaim his mercies to the Assyrians some 40 or 50 years before 
Isaiah. And of course, you'll count, remember that story that Jonah goes, he proclaims the mercies and forgiveness of God, and the Ninevites, the Assyrians, repent. And there is a great revival among the Assyrians some 50 years before the time of Isaiah. But Assyria, by the time of Isaiah, by the time now of the 28th chapter, is an evil and immoral nation. And yet, the Bible is clear that God raises them up to bring judgment against his own people. That ought to puzzle you. It did the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk asked that question as regards the Babylonians later. Because later God's going to use the Babylonians to gobble up the Assyrians and then come in and gobble up everybody else that the Assyrians haven't yet gobbled up. And that's going to include God's people. So Habakkuk asked that question later. God, we know that we're bad. We know that we deserve your judgment. But why would you use people who are twice as evil as we are? That's what he's about to do. He's about to use the Assyrians to gobble up Israel, the northern kingdom. That ought to trouble you. That ought to cause you to think. Maybe go deeper in your understanding of the character of God and the nature of God than maybe you're used to going. By the time of Isaiah... The threat of Assyria was so large that Israel and Syria to the north had made an alliance together and now were forcibly trying to convince the kings of Judah to join with them. But as we have seen already, Isaiah was sent to Ahaz, the king of Judah, to warn him not to fear Assyria. And neither should he fear the kings of Syria or Israel. Judah's God was the God of the ages, and no nation is greater than him. The refrain of the Bible again and again for God's people is stop being afraid of the world. Instead, fear the Lord God, do what he says, and he will not leave you or forsake you. And this he has promised. Remember this, that faith is trusting the promises of God. Can you count on God? Can you believe in God? Can you hope in God and be vindicated? Is your faith well-placed? Or is your, pay, your faith poorly placed? Well, the world says faith is a waste of time. It's poorly placed. But the Bible says, and God's record with his people is, that God does not lie. He promises, and you can trust him. That's called faith. Believe him for his promises. And you're going to have all kinds of trials, all kinds of threats, all kinds of enemies. Some of them are people, some of them are circumstances, some of them are situations beyond your control. But these enemies are going to conspire against your faith, your confidence in God. Do I believe God or not? And that's precisely what's going on here with this record of God's intervention through Isaiah with his people and particularly with Ahaz. So through Isaiah, God announces his plan to destroy Israel, the northern neighbor of Judah, for their sin against God, because they don't believe, they don't trust. And he intends to do that through the nation of Assyria, that evil nation off to the northeast. 
Israel's sin was multifaceted, but it primarily can be reduced to one word, and the word is idolatry. Israel's kings were not monotheistic, one God. Specifically, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. Instead, what Israel's kings did was they borrowed from the gods of their neighbors. The Syrians have a God. Let's follow him a little. The Assyrians have a God or gods. Let's follow some of them. The Egyptians have gods. Let's follow some of them. Later, the Babylonians have gods. Let's follow them. You'll remember that didn't end well for Daniel who insisted on praying to the one true God instead of the God that Nebuchadnezzar set up. So the fact that your neighbors have gods that are not your God doesn't mean you should go along with your neighbor. So instead they borrowed from these gods and they worshiped and practiced their faith accordingly. Their faith was sort of a goulash, sort of a gumbo, sort of a lot of a stuff that maybe you can't identify, but they all mix it up and call it life. And God's not having anything to do with it. In fact, he warned Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you've heard these words, Moses near the end of his life, near the end of his tenure, about to set the mantle of responsibility of leadership upon Joshua, his successor, said these words to Israel. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes, and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I swear to heaven, is the words of God that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I made a promise to your dad and your granddad and your great-granddad, and I intend to keep it. The question is, are you going to keep your side? Of the bargain? The answer, of course, is no, they're not. And in many respects, neither have we, which is why we need a Savior, because we, we have broken the covenant. We are like Israel, only not. We learn through Isaiah's long prophetic tenure and through the book of Isaiah specifically that God does keep his word, and he is going to bring judgment. He judges Israel with the Assyrians, and as you read through the book of Isaiah, the northern kingdom is destroyed. 
In 722 BC, the capital city of Israel was called Samaria. It fell to the southward advance of the Assyrian army, just like Carchemish, Aleppo, and Damascus had fallen in the years prior. But instead of stopping at the border of Judah, Assyria kept marching south, threatening Jerusalem and the people of God. Ahaz is the king, and he's entered into a treaty with the Assyrians, and he was convinced that that treaty would protect him. But alas, when you make friends with evil, you'll find that evil has not made friends with you. So this book, Isaiah, is a book about the judgment of God in the first half upon his own people, people who have forsaken him and made alliances with the world. The creep of idolatry has taken root and reached full flower in the northern kingdom. And God had now come in to destroy the entire crop. And his people in the south, Judah, were about to make the same mistake. And unless they change, they will experience the same fate. Isaiah, therefore, was sent to warn Judah, don't do like your neighbors. Don't be like your neighbors. But Isaiah had another message beyond judgment, and it's a message of hope and comfort. As we have seen, God has a long-standing promise that's governing his relationship with his people. It's as old as the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. God promised a seed, or as he calls it in Isaiah 6, a stump. A stump. A stump. As it turns out, a stump of the root of the tribe of Jesse. The son of whom is David. David is going to be the king one day. And David is going to, through his line, provide an ultimate king. A king of kings. A lord of lords. Through the stump of David, God will continue his promise. And he will not ultimately and finally destroy his people. But today we come to Isaiah 28. You wondered when we get there, so here we are. And God is going to introduce another metaphor, but it's not a seed and it's not a stump. It turns out it's a stone. God is going to tell us about a stone. And he's going to remind his people that he has not and he will not forget his covenant. So let's read together in chapter 28. You'd want to know one key to understanding the verses we're about to read. We're going to read down through verse 6, and you're going to recognize that the focus of those verses is on Israel in the north. Ephraim is another name for Israel. So Israel is the northern kingdom. But in verse 7, he's going to transition. He's going to use the, uh, the, this pronoun, these also. These also. And he's, now he's going to transition from talking about Israel to talking about Judah. So he's going to change his audience midstream, but don't be unaware of that when we get there. So let's read, beginning in verse 1. Ah, ah, by the way, that is a very strange Hebrew word. It's actually a word in Hebrew. And it could also be translated woe, woe, W-O-E, not W-H-O-A. Not talking about anybody stopping, except it's a warning word. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of these overcome with wine. 
Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. He just swallows it whole. You know what Assyria is going to do? They're going to come to Israel and they're going to swallow them whole. In that day, verse 5, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also meaning now Judah. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment, for all tabers are full of filthy vomit. They're not only drunk, they're sick drunks. And the table is full of the stuff they spit out. Verse 9, to whom will he, this puking prophet, so-called, to whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary. This is repose, and yet they would not hear. The word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we've made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant will death, with death will be annulled and your agreement with shale will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you'll be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will raise up on Mount Perizim at the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed to work his work. Alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard 
a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear, hear my voice. Give attention, hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled the surface, does he scatter dill so common, put in wheat and rows and barley in his place and emmer at its border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. There's a lot of agrarian illustrations there. I'll try to do justice to them momentarily. I want you to note a couple of things and then we'll make three applications that I think are valuable for our lives today. He says to Judah that you've made an alliance, verse 15, with death. Israel made an alliance with Syria because the Assyrians were coming against them. They didn't look to God and God brought judgment and they are overrun in 722 B.C. And there is no more northern kingdom. The southern kingdom now has the Assyrians at their northern border, and they are coming against them. And Ahaz, the king, has made an alliance with Assyria. But now the alliance is not worth the paper, or in this case, probably the papyrus, that it's written on. Turns out, when you do business with the devil... The devil's a liar. And all of us bear the marks of believing lies in our lives. That sin is better than righteousness. That falsehood is better than truth. That harsh words are better than tender words. That impatience is better than patience. That harsh words are better than soft words. And on and on and on and on and on we go. It turns out we've all believed lies. And so we see here in this warning to the people of God in the south, Judah, we see here a warning for ourselves. We should take heed to that warning. Because you have said we made a covenant, he says in verse 15, with death and with Sheol we have an agreement. The Sheol is the grave. With death we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. We don't have anything to fear with Assyria. Assyria is our friend. He says, for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Why do, why, do you, why do you have comfort in the midst of an alliance with Assyria? Because your comfort is in their lies. That's the problem with lies, isn't it? It's not true, and it offers no comfort. But if we believe those lies, then we have this sort of false assurance that's ultimately going to blow up. And so our lives are indicators of that. If you find yourself today believing somehow that God is of a certain way and that God will not bring judgment or that God does not uh, 
hate our sin or that God will not hold you accountable for your sin. If, God, if you think that somehow God is not like that, and that's precisely what Judah and its kings believed. Because God is not to be feared, let's fear the Assyrians. And we substitute the fear of God for the fear of man. And man takes priority and man takes precedence and the opinions of man and the workings of man and the leadership of man and the governments of man and the armies of man and all and all and all that we could keep going and talking about is just an illustration of our non-reliance upon God and our reliance upon the ways and thinking of the world. This is not the way of God, but it is the way of God's people throughout the Old Testament. And we've seen it in our own lives at various times. And I warn you today, we must not give in to such thinking. We must stand out from the world. We must not, not because we hate the world, but because we hate the world system. And our God hates the world system that does not look to him and hope in him, trust him, or have faith in him. They're living their lives sans God. To which God then promises that those lies will indeed show themselves. Verse 17, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. If you don't know what a plumb line is, see me later, or better yet, Google it. Hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. You think you're safe from the wrath of God? You think you're safe from the judgment of God? You think you're safe from the separation of God? Well, God's got hail you've never imagined. And there are waters that God commands that are plenty strong to take away your shelter. So there is a warning, obviously, and in the midst of that warning, God offers hope. We have much to say about that. Let me show you three applications I think will be helpful. First of all, we can si simply say throughout the book of Isaiah, this first half that we've been reading through, is that an alliance with the world is an invitation for the Lord's judgment. An alliance in the world is a poking of your finger in the eye of God. An alliance with the world. We are not to think like the world. We're not to act like the world. We're not to behave like the world. We're not to follow the world's idols. We're not to be celebrating the way the world thinks or functions or operates or the way the world celebrates, whatever it celebrates. The things that the world celebrates are not the things that Christians are to be celebrating. An alliance with the world can look like a lot of different kinds of things. An alliance of the, with the world can mean a number of things that we could talk about. But I just would go back to what we've already read in Deuteronomy 30. Just one statement, if I might. He says in uh, chapter 30, verse 17, If your heart turns away and you will not hear, if your heart turns away and you will not hear. So what does an alliance of the world look like? Or what would be the result of an alliance with the world? What would be a typical, if you will, what would be a, 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 a sign that, that, that 
the world is beginning to take root in your life or in mine. Well, here's an example. If your heart turns away and you will not hear. If your heart turns away and you've become cold to God, cold to God's Word, cold to the church, cold to the counsel of Christians, cold to the counsel of loved ones, Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your grandparents, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your friends, maybe it's your pastor, maybe it's a leader in the church, maybe a Sunday school class member. A number of people fill a role of being a voice for God in our lives and an example of becoming cold toward God, giving in to idolatry, or making an alliance with the world is if your heart turns away and you turn those people off. If you won't listen to God in the manner in which God speaks to us through his word, through his church, through his people, through loved ones who are devout and so forth, if you won't listen to God through his sources, through his voices in your life, then you have or you are in process of making an alliance with the world. And if you do that, you're inviting the Lord's hand against you. Call it chastisement if you're his child. Call it rebuke. Call it judgment if you're not his child. But I assure you, the Lord is, his arm is not too short to accomplish his will and to bring about a pure people, a holy people, peculiar unto himself. I've said before, our concern primarily is not with the ways of the world. The ways of the world are getting more and more and more and more evil. The ways of the world are getting more and more and more unrighteous. The ways of the world are continuing their march toward our border. The question is not, is the world getting darker? That, my friend, is a given. Here's the question. Are you still connected to the light? Do you understand that your task and my task is to stand against such? I always think about it this way. When God ultimately is going to bring judgment against Judah later through the nation of Babylon, all these people are going to be deported. Turns out many of them are righteous. Good people have bad things happen to them, no fault of their own. Because in the midst of their righteousness, the culture around them, the people around them, the voice around them becomes so increasingly dark that they, are get, they get caught up, and Daniel is deported. Daniel, we know about Daniel because he lives his life not in Israel or Judah, where he was birthed, where he was raised, where he is a young man, but he's now in exile. He's deported. A country comes in, conquers his nation. He gets packed up and taken off to Babylon. And the book of Daniel is about Daniel's life in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, young men raised in Israel and deported. We know about these guys in Babylon. Why are they in Babylon? Some would say, well, if they had done the right thing, they wouldn't have been deported. <laughs> what, are you writing the Bible now? But an alliance with the world is an invitation for the Lord's judgment, for the Lord's chastisement. 
And sometimes when the Lord chastises, he does so in a small way. If, dare we say, call it a micro way. But then sometimes when the Lord judges, he judges in a macro way. What is God up to right now? Well, I'll tell you what, he's up to the same thing today he's always been up with. And that is he is preserving his people by means of macro and micro judgment. Don't make an alliance with the world. It's a losing proposition. Isaiah calls it in chapter 28, verse 15, you make a covenant with death. Don't do that. It's an invitation to judgment. There's a second application we see here. That God's people understand that Christ is the foundation stone. Because we are new covenant people. Because we have the advantage of some 2,800 years of history. We have the advantage of the New Testament which the people of Isaiah's day did not have. We, we've actually seen the fulfillment of this prophetic statement in Isaiah 28, 16. We know that Christ is the foundation stone of our lives, and he is the cornerstone. So if you are connected to Christ, if your life is built upon Christ, we'll see that momentarily, then indeed you have ground for hope. You have the, if you will, you have the ground to build a life on that foundation. This is a verse that is often quoted in the New Testament, Isaiah 28, 16. Let me just show you an example. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. The question in Romans 9 is, why has God and his grace not overpowered the unbelief of his people? And why has God's grace found traction with Gentiles. So the promises of God are to the Jews, but the Jews are not believing. Why? And now, after the Jews, God has taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Why? And why is it working with one audience and not with another? That's the conversation that's going on in Romans chapter 9. Why Israel doesn't believe and why the Gentiles do believe. And so here's his answer. If you'll look, and we're not going to read them all, but in verse 25 and following of Romans chapter 9, he quotes Hosea. I'm not going to read that. Verse 27, he quotes Isaiah. Again, I've reminded you, Isaiah is the most quoted book out of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It turns out Christian people read Isaiah. They understand Isaiah. They believe Isaiah. They understand that when God says, I warn you, that's something to be serious about. So why are the Jews not believing? So he quotes from Isaiah, verse 29. But I want to read... Verse 30, look at Romans 9, 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would, be, that would lead, to righteous, lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? All right, let me summarize, because he's going he's to quote Isaiah here in a minute. He says, what am I saying? 
I'm saying that the Gentiles who pursue righteousness by means of faith actually found it. But the Jews who pursued righteousness by the law didn't find it. Why? So that's what he asked there in verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. And here he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why are the Jews not if you will, experiencing this great revival that Paul is talking about in Romans. Why are people not coming to faith amongst the Jewish people? Because they're not looking to the stone that God placed upon which they must build their lives. There is a foundation stone. It is the Messiah. There is a rock upon which you have to build your life. It is the Messiah. It is the Son of God. To quote Psalm 2, kiss the Son. And if you don't kiss him, friend, if you don't embrace him, if you don't come to Jesus, if you miss the Son, then you miss God. All that's left is you and your strategies and your lies and your unbelieving friends. It's all that's left. You better kiss the Son because he is the stone of stumbling. He is the stone of offense. Why do the Jews not believe? Because they stumble at the idea that God has sent one to bear our sin, to receive our punishment, and that we, by trusting in him, believing in him, hoping in him, and aligning our lives, following, following, following. You know what? I don't ever get to be the leader. There's an old adage if you're not the leader. The scenery never changes. That's right. But friend, if you're following Jesus, the scenery is beautiful. Our problem is we don't like the leader. And our arrogance suggests we don't need a leader. And even if he's done for us what he reports to have done for us, He's not worth following. So God's people understand. And I would ask you this morning, do you understand that Christ is the foundation stone of your life? That anything you build on him, it will stand. Did you hear the, the threat that he offers here in Isaiah 28? The threat of water, the threat of hail. What is a normal threat to a building? Lots of things. But hail, water, fire, all of these are typical and usual, dare we say, customary threats. If you're insuring a home today, you're thinking about fire. You're thinking about water. You're thinking about hail. So if you've got a home, if you've got a life built on a rock of some kind, either a good rock, strong foundation, or a shoddy one, you're thinking about the threats that are coming against it one day, and surely they will. And on that day, 
your structure will either stand or it'll be swept away. But the Christian knows that Christ is the only sure foundation and that anything built on something less than Christ is in fact doomed. I challenge you today. I call you today to come away from alliances with the world, whatever they may be. Do not pick a fight with the one who commands the hail and commands the fire and commands the water. Do not pick a fight with him. You will get crushed. There is a third application, quickly, and that is do not fail to pay attention to what you build upon that stone. Do not fail to pay attention to what you build upon that stone. And this perhaps is where the water hits the wheel for Christians today. Most of you in this room, perhaps even most of you watching by live stream, are Christians. Call yourselves Christians. You know yourself to be Christians, and I rejoice in that. Thanks be to God. But you know, as Christian people, we get to decide how we spend our lives. We get to decide whether we're going to build something out of wood, hay, or straw, or rather build something on that foundation that is stronger than that, wiser than that, more dependable than that, more secure than that, if you will, more long-lasting than that. If your life is a cheap suit, <laughs> well, you're not fooling anybody. But if your life, if your life is well, well-determined, well-structured, well choreographed, well, well, that's the wrong word perhaps, but you know what I mean. If, if, you're, if you order your life in such a way that, that it makes sense to God, makes sense to people, that's the kind of person you should be, that's, a, that's what you should say, that's how you should live, that's what you should not say, that's what you should not live, how you should not function. If, if that's the nature of your life, that shows up, that's visible, and ultimately that is precisely what we are to do. Let me show you an example. First Peter chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2, we're almost to the end, so stay with me. Notice what he says, verse 1. We're doing our New Testament workshop, and tonight the focus is 1 Peter. Should I preach this tonight again? Some of you are not paying attention, so you should come back tonight so I can hammer it again. But here, I want you to get it right the first time. Read it, verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Now, that doesn't sound like, you know, like rocket science, right? What kind of people should Christian people be? Well, it's people who put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Put it away. That's because you're a Christian. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. See what he says? He's got a metaphor here. It's called growing. Growing, and he uses this analogy of a baby who takes milk. And he says, like a newborn baby, desire the milk. 
grow, desire to grow, desire to change. All of us who have had children, all of us who have had grandchildren, we think they're wonderfully when they're brand new and they're cuddly and all that, and you say, oh, I wish they could stay that way forever. No, you don't. You want them to grow up. You want them to mature. You want them to flower. You want them to actually make wise choices. They're not making any choices. He's two days old. You know what choice he's making? How loud do I cry? That's his choice. And it's always universally bad. So that's not what we want. We want them to grow up. So that's his point here. As newborn infants long for that which causes you to grow up. If indeed, verse 3, you have tasted and see that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone, there's our metaphor, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now he changed the metaphor. First it was a baby, now you're a house. You're like a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Where's that phrase found? Spiritual sacrifices. He's not asking you to come down and sacrifice a lamb. No turtle doves being killed here today. He doesn't want that. He, offers, he wants you to come and build a house where there are spiritual sacrifices. Consider Romans 12. This is exactly the language of Romans 12. He says there that we are to follow Christ and that we are to present ourselves as spiritual worshipers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, verse 1, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may, by testing, discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Your mind, in other words, your spiritual worship begins in your mind. You, you evaluate A and reject it, and you evaluate B and you embrace it, and you do so through a spiritual grid, through a spiritual taxonomy. You say, this is right, and that is trash, and I ain't going for that. I'm not going to build my life. I'm not going to offer my life to God based on that. Again, what's the analogy from the Old Testament? The Old Testament analogy is don't bring to God that which is infirmed. I know I'm supposed to bring a lamb. Hey, I've got a lamb that's got a broken leg. I don't really want that thing. It's not really much value. I'm going to give it to God because I get credit for making a sacrifice. It turns out God's smarter than you are, doofus. And he's anticipated that you might do a little end around. And he says, oh, by the way, when you bring the sacrifice, you better make sure he has nary a spot, nary a blemish. It better be your best because I'm worth your best. So bring to God your spiritual worship. What should you bring to God? Well, tells us exactly. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, a holy priesthood offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and now he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. That's a sweet phrase. So the honor is for you who believe. You know, God intends that when you come to him and that he comes to you and there is an alliance between you and God, that that is to be, if you, as it were, an honor toward you. That God is actually honoring you. God has given you his son. That's a, that's a testimony of God's heart for you, wouldn't you say? You gave your son to somebody? You wouldn't do that without calculation of the value of the person that you are giving your son to? So it is an honor that God has come to you, that God has given to you, that God has bestowed upon you, and that God has called you to himself. It is an honor for you to live for God, to, to live your life as a trophy to God, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, and that you build upon this stone, the chief stone, the stumbling stone for some, but the cornerstone for you. It is an honor to build a life worthy of God. Now, the world and its voices, they're all out there. In Isaiah, it's the Assyrians. It's the Syrians. It's the northern kingdom. It's even Egypt to the south. They haven't mentioned them, but they're all over Isaiah. They're these voices. They clamor. They clamor. They clamor. I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. I beg of you, friend, know the word of God like an infant, long for the sincere milk of the word and be discerning the voices that you give ear to and don't give in to the world. The alliance is deadly. Don't make a deal with the devil. Don't make a deal with the grave. Let's all be faithful to God. Pray with me. Father, thank you this morning that you are for us and you're at work in ways that are precious. Pray for your mercies for us. We pray for your mercies upon our church, upon our lives together. Pray, Father, that you would continue to help us to be men and women who, who look to God, who trust in God, who hope in God, who cling to God. Help us to be discerning. Help us to listen to you, to your word, to your people. Thank you that you've assembled around us people who are wise, people who are kind, people who are good, people who are building spiritual houses of sacrifice upon the sure foundation of your son. Help us to follow you together. For those who do not know you, Lord, I pray you would open their eyes to see Jesus. Even today we pray for the Jewish people you would open their eyes to see the Messiah. The Son of God has come. This is not a small thing. Father, help us to love him, treasure him, and be devoted to him. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.